I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read our passage for this morning. Um, and again, as I, as I said to the children, uh, we'll be looking this morning um, at uh, just at, at Luke 19, one, sorry, yeah, Luke 19, 11 to, to 19. Um, and then we'll look at the second half of the, of the passage um, next week, Lord willing. Luke, Luke 19, 11. I'm going to read the whole thing down at 27. Uh, Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage a business until I come. But his delegates but sorry, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. May he add eternal blessings upon its reading. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we look at this passage of Scripture, Lord, I'm conscious of my weakness. I'm conscious of my failings. I'm conscious of my inability to do anything apart from the strengthening that comes through your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me now to proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters, that they would hear your word and 
would be encouraged, that you would apply your word to their hearts. And Lord, for any unbelievers here in our midst, we pray that your word would go forth with power, and Lord, that it would, would, um, would plant gospel seeds, that through the power of your Holy Spirit would spring forth and bear much fruit for your glory. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the early parts of J.R.R. Tolkien's epic series, The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is running through, is roaming through the wilderness as a ranger of the north. And when Sauron's ring of power is discovered in the possession of the hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, Aragorn leads a fellowship made up of men and a dwarf and an elf and four hobbits on a quest to Mordor. They set out to cast the ring into the fires of Mount Doom, the volcanic fissure from whence the ring was forged. This is an attempt to stop Middle-earth from being ensnared in Soren's power, which has been invested into the ring. But early on in the journey, the fellowship falters as one of the men, Boromir, attempts to take the ring for himself after succumbing to the ring's power. And the two, hob two of the hobbits, Frodo the Ringbearer and his faithful friend Sam Gamgee, flee, taking the ring directly to the crack of doom themselves. The other two hobbits are then captured by orcs and the rest of the fellowship, still led by Aragorn, set off in pursuit of them. Meanwhile, the forces of Sauron have marched from Mordor to lay siege on the city of Minas Tirith with an army of orcs and Easterlings and Hatterim and Variags and Oliphants and Trolls and most feared of all, the Nazgul. And against overwhelming numbers, Minas Tirith, the city of men, is on the brink of annihilation. And this battle is evocative of Tolkien's own experience fighting in the Battle of the Somme during World War I, a battle in which more than three million men fought and over a million were injured and killed. It is one of the most deadly battles in human history. But even more than that, this, this story, this, this epic series, is evocative of the faith of J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's, it's debatable whether he was truly a Christian or whether he remained a Roman Catholic, but there, there are definitely very strong uh, influences of the, of the gospel in this series. As defeat is imminent, and it looks like Minas Tirith and men are about to be destroyed from Middle Earth, the situation becomes even more bleak as a fleet of black ships belonging to evil corsairs appear on the river Anduin opposite the city. And it seems that all is lost until the flagship unfurls the banner, the ancient banner of the kings of Gondor. The ships are no longer in the control of the evil corsairs, but have been commandeered by Aragorn, leading an army of the dead who would only fight at the behest of the heir of Isildur, the rightful king of Gondor. Aragorn arrives in the nick of time, but not just as a commander. He arrives as Isildur's heir, as the rightful king. So through the fracture of the fellowship, through all the battles, through all the peril, Aragorn has always been King Elisir Telkontar of Gondor. However, his kingdom was not yet fulfilled. 
Yet even as the king enters the city of Minas Tirith as its victorious king, this is not the end of the story. For even as these events are taking place, the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, approach the crack of doom to destroy the ring of power. Two unassuming hobbits, less than four feet tall, when trusted with this gargantuan task upon which the fate of Middle-earth hangs. If they succeed, victory is assured. If they fail, Middle-earth will fall into the hands of Sauron. Will they prove faithful? Will they succeed in their appointed task? As we step back into Luke's gospel account in Luke 19, 11 to 27, Jesus is still in Jericho. Jesus is the king. He came to the earth he created as its king, even as an infant. Nonetheless, throughout his earthly ministry, he just demonstrated that he is the king as he revealed the power of the kingdom and what he did and the truth of the kingdom and what he taught. But apart from the unveiling of his glory as witnessed by Peter and James and John at the Mount of Transfiguration, there was no moment when his kingship seemed more manifest than in the event that was about to take place. As Jesus arrived at Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But we know that the king's coronation was not imminent. The only crown that Jesus would wear at this time was the crown of thorns. The crowd's hosannas would be quickly replaced with shouts of crucify him. King Jesus would give up his life for the sins of his people. And, but three days later, he would rise from the grave. And 40 days after that, he would ascend bodily to heaven. And it is here in heaven where he received his coronation as king. One day, King Jesus will return to finally fulfill the kingdom he established at his incarnation. But meanwhile, we live in the already, not yet, between the inauguration of the kingdom and its consummation, its fulfillment. We live between the incarnation of Christ and his return. And in this passage, in the parable of the Minas, we see that King Jesus has left us here with work to do. He invested each of his servants with responsibilities to perform as we anticipate his return. Now, this passage is in, in many respects similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And some commentators say that Luke has actually edited the same teaching of Jesus from Matthew and placed it here in Luke. But I believe that such, such conjecture is a denial of the inerrancy of God's word. I've heard many preachers say a similar sermon more than once. And why would Jesus not do the same? as he taught on many different occasions. We've seen that already, that there, there is, is overlap. There are things that he taught in several places. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain were two distinct sermons, but they have a, a, a fair amount of material in common. 
And there are significant details that are different between the parable of the talents and the parable of, of the meanest that we're looking at here this morning. Furthermore, the point of the parable that we're looking at this morning is different. In Matthew, Jesus is teaching how people are given, given differing gifts and are assigned tasks in accordance with their gifting. But the point here in Luke is different. The point in Luke is, is, is that it's more about the faithfulness, about faithfulness to the king in the anticipation of his return. Again, the details are different. There are these in, in Luke here, they're very relatively small amounts. They're uh, minas, as we'll talk about, is, is about 100 days wages. Whereas a talent was about 1,000 days wages, much, much larger amount of money. And they're, they're different amounts to the different servants. But here, all the servants are, there's 10 servants and each one is given one mina, the same amount. Again, so there's different details and there is a different point. The parable in, of the talents in Matthew highlights the fact that we all have different gifts, whereas the parable of the minas in Luke highlights the fact that we must live out our faith. We all must live out our faith and we will all give an account to the king at his return for how each of us has lived, lived out our faith. In our passages this morning, there are three types of people. Those who serve the king, those who supposedly serve the king, and those who rebel against the king. But as we'll see, there, there aren't really three types of people. There's actually just two types of people. That those who supposedly serve the king, we'll see this next week, have a similar fate to, to those who rebel against the king. There's really just two types of people, those who enter the kingdom and those who do not. So as his departure approaches, Jesus is telling us how disciples should live life in light of the coming kingdom. And so Jesus told those disciples, as he continues to tell disciples today, how his faithful servants are to conduct themselves as they anticipate his return. King Jesus reigns, and true servants must still fight against the kingdom of darkness. The actions of faithful servants, as we'll see next week, are contrasted by unfaithful servants who do not serve him and those who actually actively rebel against him. So then the theme of our, of our passage on the eve of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem continues to be those who enter the kingdom again and those who do not enter the kingdom. Servants are added to the number of those entering the kingdom among lepers and widows and children and tax collectors and the blind, whereas as we'll see next week, the crowds and unfaithful servants are included among the Pharisees and the rich young ruler who do not enter the kingdom. There are four key sections in this passage. We're going to again look at the first two this week and the final two next week, Lord willing. In verses 11 to 15, we see the king's coronation. And then verses 16 to 19, we see the faithful servants. And then in verses 20 to 24, we see the unfaithful servant. And then in verses 25 to 27, we see the king's judgment. So then let's see how disciples live as faithful servants of King Jesus in the already not yet. 
So first of all, the king's coronation, verses 11 to 15. Luke begins, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So notice he says, as he heard these things. So, so this section, this passage really continues what has immediately preceded it. There's no break between what we see here and what's just happened. Now, now we have had five weeks break. But this is actually continuing on from verse 10. The context here is the salvation of of Bartimaeus from 1835 to 43 and Zacchaeus in 19, 1 to 10. The the Son of Man has truly come to seek and to save the lost. Verse 10. Again, this is contrasting those who enter the kingdom and those who do not. Now, in our passage here, Luke helps us immensely by telling us immediately the meaning of the parable. He says that Jesus proceeded to Tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, it's precisely because of Jesus' proximity to Jerusalem that and the messianic expectations associated with his arrival in the city that he tells this parable. As we explain to the kids, because as he enters into the city, he's going to enter accord with fanfare. And so the disciples are, are assuming this is when he is, when he is crowned as king. This is when he's going to oust the Romans and he's going to reign and to rule. This is going to be the, the, expect, the fulfillment of the expectation of, of their focus of so many of the, the kingly prophecies in the Old Testament. But they have shown repeatedly, as we've seen again and again, they have a, they've shown a failure to understand the mission of the Messiah. They fail to understand the, all of the passages about the suffering of the Messiah. And so Jesus wants to set them straight before these events take place. So again, Jerusalem, Jerusalem has been, been looming on the horizon through this whole middle section of, of Luke's gospel account. And now Jerusalem is very close. Last time I'd said that, that Jericho was about 40 kilometers from Jerusalem. Is actually, that's using a modern map. Okay, that the road to Jericho was actually under 30 kilometers. It's about a six-hour walk. So Jesus is very, very close to Jerusalem. And as they approach, again, Jesus wants to correct the disciples' false understanding about the kingdom as to its nature and its timing. Again, they're expecting that just as Jesus has shown his authority and his power over nature and over death and over disease, that he's going to do the same thing with the Romans. But Jesus is showing that he has a different mission. They believe that he's going to enter and assume the messianic throne of David. But Jesus has another mission that will take place first. The disciples did not understand the already not yet of the kingdom. They didn't understand that the kingdom will only be fulfilled at his return. They didn't understand that, that, his, that, that the incarnation of Christ is that God the Son taking on human flesh <clears throat> inaugurated the kingdom, but that it is at his return he's going to consummate the kingdom. So verse 12, Jesus said, therefore, A parable went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
Again, Jesus came into the world as a king of kings and lord of lords. However, he would not have been recognized as such in his fullness, not by his parents, not even by his disciples. The people did not understand what Jesus did, despite what he taught. They didn't put it all together. But despite people's failure to understand, Jesus was still the king. He's still reigning, even though people did not recognize it. But after his death and resurrection, after he wins the victory over sin and Satan and, de- and over hell, he's going to ascend to his heavenly throne, and only then will he return to consummate his kingdom. Jesus is going to return, possibly very soon. We pray, come Lord Jesus. So Jesus as king is going to be a major focus here with the rest of Luke's gospel account as we move into the the last section, the third and final section. Verse 13. Before his departure, this nobleman calls ten of his servants and gives each of them a a minus, which is about a hundred drachmas or a a hundred denarii, which is about three three months' wages for for a day laborer. Okay, so so not a, a large amount of money. And these, these servants were to engage in business and to make a profit until the king was crowned and returned. And, and these, so we need to understand these, these minas represent the responsibilities and opportunities that are given to Jesus' servants. Servants are to invest their time and their talent and their treasure in the kingdom of God. Are you a Christian? Are you a servant of the king? How are you investing your time and your talents and your treasure as a servant of King Jesus? Are you living for the eternal kingdom of God or for the kingdom of this world? And this world is passing away. Along with all its desires, whatever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.17 Are you truly a servant of Jesus Christ? Until the return of the kingdom, the kingdom is going to be advanced by humble servants. And I, again, I think that, that, that Tolkien in his book chose to have these, these little hobbits, four feet tall, who are going to be, be charged with this vastly important task, this, this huge task, to be a picture of, of us in, in our weakness, in, in our humility. The kingdom is, is not advanced in worldly ways. The weapons of a warfare are not of the flesh, but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We, are, we in our, ourselves are, are weak and powerless, but we have great responsibility in the kingdom of God. You've been entrusted with a down payment to be used for the advance of God's kingdom. What are you doing with God's down payment? How are you investing the meanness that God has given you? Are you using it to advance God's kingdom or yours? Are you living for God and His glory or yours? Are you seeking God's pleasure or yours? Are you loving God and others by telling them the gospel? Or are you loving yourself by neglecting to tell others the gospel? Yeah, these are questions that, that servants need to ask as they live in the already, not yet. 
We'll meet another group of people in verse 14, and we'll come back and we'll spend more time focusing on them next week. But, but these were people who were living completely for themselves. The citizens. They, they are the citizens of the country that the king ruled, but they rejected his kingship. Jesus says that they hated the king, and so they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. These are the masses. They represent the, the crowds of, of Jews, many of whom actually followed Jesus along the road, at least physically. Many of whom are going to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. But in just a few days' time, these same people are going to be crying out, crucify him. These capricious and volatile crowds are going to reject King Jesus no matter what they say or no matter what they do initially. We're going to come back to focus on them more next week. But the king is going to return just as he promised after his coronation. And then he's going to call everything into account. Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Again, the king will return and each servant will give an account for how he or she has lived for the kingdom. In this gap period between the king's departure and the king's return. Friends, that's where we live. We live in that in-between period, between the, the already not yet, between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the, of the same. And we all, all of us, we will all stand individually before God and give an account for how we have been stewards of what God has invested in us. Now, pastors are certainly in view here. Believe me, I have come under the weight of this passage. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. However, it's not just, just pastors. There's a, the standard of judgment is the same. It, the, the, the consequences for unfaithfulness are greater because it's a greater strictness, but the standard is, of judgment is still the same. We will all give an account. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10 well, Now Jesus focuses on the first group, the faithful servants, in verses 16 to 19. We meet here two servants who are representative of all faithful servants. The first servant comes before the king and says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. That's a thousand percent profit. That's not a bad investment. You won't find any worldly investments that, that, that will pay off like that. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't press this too far. We, we know that, that we aren't the ones who make the increase. It's God's mina that produces the profit. Right? One plants and another waters, but God gives the growth. 1 Corinthians 3.7 But we aren't hyper-Calvinists here. Right? We, we know that the scriptures teach God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We work because God is at work in our hearts. And we know that, that God is at work in the hearts of his elects. 
we can be confident that as we share God's word before others and live God's word out before others, that God's, God's word will accomplish that for which God sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. God's word accomplishes God's will. And we can be confident that it will accomplish God's will in our hearts as well. Now the king here graciously responds to the faithful servant. In verse 17, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Notice here the, the commendation, the explanation, and the elevation. The king commends the servant. He commends the servant's actions and his character. You have done well. You are a good servant. Oh, to hear those words from King Jesus. Well done, good servant. I can't imagine there are, there are any more blessed words to ever hear. Well done, good servant, from our King. Will you hear those words based on how you have conducted yourself in the already not yet? based on how you have conducted yourself over the past week, over the past month, over the past year? Is there anything outstanding between you and God? Is there anything that you presently need to repent of? The king explains his commendation to the servant. He says, you've been faithful in very little. Now it makes sense, right? One, one's character is often revealed in the small things. Jesus says something similar in Luke 16.10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Are you faithful in the little things? Are you consciously reliant on Christ? Are you daily relying on Christ for your salvation again this might not this might not seem like a like this might seem like a small thing but it's a huge thing it's vital these are the foundational things of your faith are you relying on Christ alone for your salvation are, are you are you walking in daily fellowship with him through the word and through prayer are you seeking to be a good witness for Christ in your relationships Are you fighting sin? Are you the same person when you're alone as you are when other people are around? Now you might think that no one's watching, but God is watching, and every deed will be brought into account. And God is going to bring his judgment with him when he returns. But now listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Paul just said there? Now, I don't know about you, but, but my tendency 
would be to expect Paul to say, then each one, when we talk about the deeds of the judgment, I would expect Paul to say, then each one, including me, will receive his condemnation from God. That's not what Paul says. He says each one will receive his commendation from God. That, beloved, is amazing grace. Now the king elevates the servant. He says, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now notice here that it's, it, and we'll see this a little bit more fully in a moment, but, but that he earned ten minas, and he receives authority over ten cities. So the, the reward is linked with, with the investment in the kingdom. The king had given him an opportunity to be faithful with a small amount. Again, only three months' wages. And now the king gives the servant authority over ten cities. He had made a 1,000% a increase for his master. And now he receives an even a measure, more immeasurably greater reward. Far, far greater than 1,000%. Three months' wages to ten cities. Again, beloved, this is the grace of God. Now in verse 18, the second servant gives an account. He's made a return of of five minutes. That's a 500% increase. Still an excellent return. Again, notice that the reward is connected to to the fruitfulness. A return of 10 minutes leads to authority over 10 cities, and a return of five minutes leads to authority over five cities. Again, your reward will be tied to your faithfulness. And there, there are countless blessings, countless blessings in this life for faithfulness to the king. But as a return, you will receive infinitely more. Whether it's 1,000% or 500%, your little efforts through the power of the Holy Spirit will produce far more than you realize. Again, our weak and our, our puny efforts yield great increase for the kingdom of God. It's just through the power of the Spirit. It's God doing it in us and through us. Again, the grace of God that, that He would reward us for work that ultimately He has done. And your little efforts And the power of the Spirit will yield far greater increase than you could ever imagine. You probably heard the story about C.H. Spurgeon's conversion. One Sunday morning as a 15-year-old, Spurgeon, who had been brought up in the the home of a a pastor, he'd come under conviction of the Holy Spirit and and realized his need to be born again, 15 years old. The Sunday morning is is a snowstorm. And so because of the deep snowdrifts, he had to divert from his normal course. And, and he found himself going down a side street and outside of the primitive Methodist chapel or artillery street in London. And instead of going to his normal church, he, he entered this, this church for shelter. And on this Sunday, there was a guest lay preacher, a, a man whose name history has not recorded. He stepped into the pulpit and read the text Isaiah from Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no one else. 
history has not recorded the name of this preacher who is used of God to bring C.H. Spurgeon to faith. But his name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. This man has long been in glory. He has received his reward. And at the, the final judgment seat, he will receive the fullness of the reward. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the next C.H. Spurgeon is sitting in his room listening right now. Or maybe somebody who's listening in this room is going to be the one who preaches the gospel to the next C.H. Spurgeon. But it's not just the Spurgeons who are valued by the king. As we saw back in Luke 15, 7, there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. One of the greatest privileges that you can have is being used of God to welcome someone into the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel to them. Have you had that experience? Have you had that privilege? But again, it's, it's not even just preaching the gospel. It's not just conversions that the king values. It's encur the encouragement of another believer. It's calling another Christian to repentance. It's speaking the truth in love to, to challenge someone who's walking in, in a pattern of sin. It's speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. It's all the one another's of the New Testament. And it's not just in the life of others, it's, it's in your life as well. It's time spent in the word and prayer. It's, it's actively fighting sin. It's praising God for his blessings. It's trusting God in the midst of trials. It's seeking to live a life for the glory of God. These are all the, the elements of, of a faithful servant as we live now in the already, not yet. But the greatest and most vital work, I mentioned this a moment ago, is, is simply trusting Christ for your salvation. It's the first step of faithfulness. It's placing your faith in Christ alone. Those who have done that, those who are true servants of the king, know the blessings of serving the king. They can say with the sons of Korah in Psalm 84, 10 to 12, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Do you know these things? Have you experienced these things? Have you experienced the blessing of walking before the Lord in faithfulness in this life? Faithfulness breeds faithfulness. The more that you experience this, the more you want to experience this, the more you grow in this. The more you enjoy the present benefits, the more you anticipate the rewards at his return. 
Friends, we are living in the already not yet. The kingdom of Christ has been inaugurated, but has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus is reigning in heaven now, but the question that you must ask yourself, is he reigning in your heart? He will return. He will return to reward the faithful, and, but will you be counted among them? Will you hear the words from the lips of King Jesus? Well done, good servant. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your amazing grace. Lord Jesus, as you came into the world to redeem sinners, to save them from their sin, sins by dying for their sins. Being raised on the third day and ascending to the throne in heaven. And Lord Jesus, we know that one day you will return just as you departed, bringing your rewards with you for those who are true servants, those who are trusting in Christ for those who are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance through the power of the Spirit. Lord, we all acknowledge that in many ways we, are, we remain worthless servants and that we fail again and again. Grant us repentance, I pray. Grant us growth through the power of your, of your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to walk in increased faithfulness for your glory and for the advance of your kingdom. May we be motivated by eternal blessings, the blessings that are granted to servants by your grace, even as we enjoy the first, fruit, first fruits of those blessings even now. We pray this in the majestic name of Christ, the only Savior. Amen.